Hello and welcome back to the Early Music Podcast. Today we are talking about performance spaces and how physical or acoustical characteristics might affect how we interpret the performance of a work. Do we know if certain works were written for specific spaces? Were there aspects to a space which had to be considered in the composition of staged works? How does the understanding of these original performance spaces help us gain a new perspective on familiar works for the audience or for the listener? We'll speak about this topic through the example of Claudio Monteverdi, one of the most exceptional composers in Italy at the turn of the 17th century, whose illustrious career saw him reside at two very important musical centers during his day in Mantua and Venice. So, are you ready for this? Join me with our combined strength. Bring order to the galaxy. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. And here we go. This is the Early Music Podcast with your host, Andrew Byrne. Brought to you by Rayma. The Early Music Network. Kawabunga. Episode 3. There is no question that Monteverdi was the greatest composer in Italy in the early 17th century. Even his contemporaries recognize that. That's Dr. Tim Carter, David G. Fry Distinguished Professor Emeritus in the Department of Music at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a leading Monteverdi scholar. But at the same time, Monteverdi was surrounded by a constellation of musicians, composers, and performers with whom he's working, with whom he's interacting. So to study Monteverdi's music on its own somewhat misses the point because you have to think about all these contexts of who is singing what, when, whose voices are we hearing now, even if those singers, those musicians, those instrumentalists have been long dead. And trying to recover the performance resources that Monteverdi had um, suddenly brings his music to life in quite different ways. Could you give us an example where recovering these performance resources changed your understanding of a given work? My most recent project has been a collaboration with the Florentine theatre historian Francesca Fantapier um, on Jacopo Peri's Eurydice, the first opera, so-called, that was performed in Florence in uh, October 1600. And Francesca and I found all sorts of documents in the Archivio di Stato in Florence that basically have enabled us to reconstruct the staging of Peri's Eurydice very, very precisely in terms of the dimensions of the stage, the ways in which the scenery might have worked uh, and so on also in the place in the room for which it was originally designed which was the Sala delle Nicchie in the Palazzo Pitti in Florence so we now have the materials available to actually do a reconstructed performance of Eurydice in that space the space the size the scenery the costumes uh, and so on Uh, and this is very exciting because what happens is that 
We've tended to treat Eurydice as a rather dry academic exercise, uh, and certainly as not as good as Monteverdi's Orfeo of 1607. But at the same time, by viewing Eurydice in its precise space, in its environment, you'll start looking at the music and the libretto in quite different ways. If you read a libretto or look at a score, that only gives you a half, if that, of the picture of what you need to think about these works. So our efforts to reconstruct the staging forced us basically to rethink our view of the score on the one hand and the libretto on the other. And it turns out to be a rather good piece. Monteverdi probably was in Florence in 1600. He was part of the retinue of Duke Vincenzo Gonzaga. He would not have seen Eurydice at its performance because that was a very small group that was invited. But he was certainly involved in, in discussions. He might have seen rehearsals. He certainly knew Ridocini's libretto for Eurydice, and he equally certainly knew Jacopo Peri's score. Um, so it's clear that that encounter in Florence in 1600 inspired in some way Monteverdi and his librettist Alessandro Striggio to come up with their own version of the Orpheus legend, Orfeo, that was done in Mantua in 1607. What did your research on the staging of Perry's Eurydice teach you that would be relevant for a performance today? Jacopo Perry's Eurydice was done on a surprisingly small stage, you know, 10 meters wide and 8 meters deep. It's a very concentrated space that had to be lit in various ways and the singers would have to be positioned very carefully in order to be able to project across the footlights to the audience. One of the things that I myself had never realized was the end of the underworld scene in Eurydice. Orpheus loses his bride Eurydice on his wedding day, she's bitten by a snake, she goes to the underworld, and Orpheus decides to go down to the underworld to retrieve his bride. Um, so we have an underworld scene where Orpheus encounters the gods of the underworld and has to make his case for bringing Eurydice back. That scene must have been quite striking, but uh, one of the things we figured out was that that underworld scene ends rather strangely with a double chorus. Two choruses of spirits sing separately and then come together. And we were trying to figure out why on earth do you have a double chorus of spirits at the end of the underworld scene in Eurydice. And then we were thinking about how the staging would have worked. And in fact, what you have in the underworld scene in Eurydice is you have gods coming from both sides of the stage. And those gods are accompanied by a retinue of spirits. And therefore, you have two choruses of spirits from opposite sides of the stage that eventually come together in the middle and sing the final chorus together. So that's a good example of how something that looked odd in a score only started to make sense as you actually think about the staging itself and how it might have worked. And as a result, 
you would perform that chorus of the end of the underworld scene quite differently. Uh, and it would actually sound different as well because you would have the sounds coming from different sides of the stage until at the end of the scene, the chorus comes together towards the front of the stage in order to sing to the audience, but also to cover the sound of the machinery changing the set back to the pastoral scene for the final scene of the opera. So that underworld chorus now becomes quite striking both as a dramatic device, but also as solving a theatrical problem. One of the things that always creates problems in performances of Eurydice is that the music is largely in a so-called recitative style. It's a style that moves between declamation and a more lyrical arioso, very flexibly. And even at the time, some people in the audience found it boring. We have comments saying, this music is too boring, too much like the chanting of the passion, and so on. So how do you bring this music to life? What happens is if you're working within a very small space, everything becomes much more concentrated, much more focused. And once you actually take the Italian language into account, singers have a lot more to work with. And so if you start thinking about how declamation works in a more natural way, and if you start singing the music in that more passionate, effective striking kind of way, it suddenly comes across the footlights quite differently. Monteverdi took a quite different route in his Orfeo because he still has recitative, but he also incorporated a lot more choruses, dance interludes, instrumental sinfonia and so on. And so Orfeo uh, is much more appealing on the surface because it has this tremendous musical variety. Moving back to Monteverdi, what clues do we have to the spaces where his music was performed, especially in the Ducal Palace of Mantova, where he worked? The problem with finding the original spaces in which music was performed is that a lot of the spaces do not survive or were significantly restored, meaning that they are quite different from how they were in the late 16th century. In the case of Peri's Eurydice, we know that the opera was designed to be performed in a specific room in the Palazzo Pitti in Florence. And we have reconstructions of that room so we can get a sense of the shape, the size of the room. In the case of Mantua, it's much more difficult because of the damage that occurred in the Palazzo Ducale in Mantua across the centuries. The building as we have it now doesn't bear much relation to how it was in Monteverdi's time in the early 17th century. One of the problems, for example, is the so-called Sala degli Specchi, the Hall of Mirrors. Well, there is a room now in the Palazzo Ducale in Mantua that's called the Hall of Mirrors, the Sala degli Specchi. And if you go and do a tour of the palace, there's a little plaque that says, this is where Monteverdi's Orfeo was first performed in 1607. Well, that Sala degli Specchi is an 18th century construct. And so that's not the space that uh, was used for any kind of performance. There was a different room upstairs in the uh, Palazzo Ducale in Mantua that probably was a Sala degli Specchi, but just a different Hall of Mirrors. And we know more or less where that room is, what size it is, uh, and so on. Um, and that's where Monteverdi largely would have performed his chamber music, usually in a fairly private context. Monteverdi talks about concerts in the Sala degli Specchi every Friday evening. 
uh, and he says, oh, this is amazing. Every Friday evening, we do a concert in the Sala de Despecki. And, uh, you know, the Duke is there, the Duchess is there, the princes are there, the courtiers are there, and so on. And he talks about what kind of music is being performed, who is singing that music, and so on. So we can get a sense of what kinds of things went on. Um, but this was largely private music, chamber music. I should take a moment to say that Orfeo, Monteverdi's first opera, is often called the first opera for a number of reasons. As Tim Carter said, Orfeo was much more appealing on the surface because of the variety of music on display, not just the restative form, as with Perry's Eurydice. Orfeo was published twice during Monteverdi's lifetime and was likely performed a number of times, including outside of Italy, between 1607 and Monteverdi's death in 1643. The main reason I suspect we treat it as the first opera, though, is because Orfeo, and not Eurydice, was the opera which attracted the interest of early music historians in the 19th century. And when I say early music historians, I mean early music historians. It was Orfeo that was revived for a concert performance in 1904, and from then on eventually made its way back into regular or semi-regular performance. Perry's Eurydice, however, despite being performed first, is really a footnote in music history books as Orfeo was then, and since its early 20th century revival, continues to be the more popular entertainment between the two. So, do we have reliable clues as to where Orfeo was performed first? Well, the question of Monteverdi's Orfeo is quite difficult because Monteverdi's Orfeo was done under the auspices of the so-called Accademia degli Invaditi, which was one of the academies in Mantua. And the records we have is that Orfeo was done in the apartment formerly occupied by the Dowager Duchess of Ferrara. At some point in the very early 1600s, the Dowager Duchess of Ferrara moved into a convent further down the road, so those apartments were left empty. And that's where we know Monteverdi's Orfeo was done, but we have absolutely no idea where those apartments were within the Palazzo Ducale. We can kind of maybe have an idea, but we've got no sense of the physical space of Orfeo in the same way as we certainly have for Jacopo Perry's Eurydice. What about other rooms in the palace? Is there any other space that is more definitely related to music and that can enlighten us on the performance habits of the Gonzaga court? Probably the most interesting space in Mantua is the Basilica of Santa Barbara. Duke Guglielmo Gonzaga constructed a church within the Ducal Palace complex. It's a fairly small church with a fairly single nave and galleries, balconies on both sides. It's possible that Monteverdi's Vespers may have been performed in that space. And indeed, if you hear the Monteverdi Vespers done in Santa Barbara, it's quite spectacular. The point being that you can't actually see the musicians. And the musicians are up there in the galleries and they're invisible to the audience. So you sit in the nave of Santa Barbara and you have these fabulous sounds coming from who knows where, as we all know with Monteverdi's 1610 Vespers, it's enormously rich. We have a choir, we have soloists, we have a massive instrumental ensemble. 
we also have a lot of echo effects being used. And hearing the Vespers in Santa Barbara gives you a very real sense of how Monteverdi is exploiting a kind of three-dimensional sonic space. You've got music coming from one side, music coming from the other side, music coming from the back. It changes the ways in which you experience that music. It becomes very, very physical at that point. So we don't know for sure that the Vespers of Monteverdi were performed there in Santa Barbara. Monteverdi maybe used the 1610 Vespers as an advertisement to get out of Mantova and to advance his career. And he certainly was showing off his skills in writing for larger spaces and ensembles in these Vespers. He showcased some of his work in Rome, but let's fast forward to 1613 where he is now a maestro di cappella for the San Marco Basilica in Venice. St. Mark's was certainly the kind of ceremonial home of Venice, and that's where most of the major um, ecclesiastical and also civic events took place. But from what we know about actual music in St. Mark's, it probably wasn't very interesting. The music in Venice seems largely to have taken place in other churches in Venice, or in particular in the Scuola Grande, these confraternities, these charitable institutions that on their feast days would hire musicians from here, there and everywhere. The obvious example is the Scuola Grande di San Rocco, which is right next door to the Basilica di Frari, a fabulous building uh, with Tintoretto paintings. And we have descriptions of performances of music. For example, Thomas Corriate, a kind of British nobleman who was doing the Grand Tour of Italy, ended up in Venice and talks about music in Venice in three places. Music on the street, the music of courtesans, and he talks about a performance uh, on August the 6th, which was the Feast of San Rocco, the Feast of St. Roche. It was normally organized by the Squalor di San Rocco. So we can go to the upstairs room in the Squalor di San Rocco, up the magnificent stairs, and we can imagine how what Thomas Corriere heard and saw. There are choirs over here, there are seven pairs of organs, whatever that might mean, over there. There's a strange thing called a eunuch, Castrato, who is singing, and he is wrapped into the third heaven by this music. Do we know of any other confirmed performance spaces in Venice where music could be heard at that time? The other space we know was used uh, in Venice um, involved uh, private palaces. Uh, so Monteverdi didn't just perform and compose music for St. Mark's, but he wrote music for these sacred institutions, these confraternities, but also for private patrons. And he would provide music for musical evenings, soirees. And one of them took place in Palazzo Mocenigo in uh, Carnival 1624. Monteverdi describes the whole event. He says there was an evening of madrigali senza gesto. In other words, just sung madrigals. But then all of a sudden, someone suddenly appeared from another room, who turns out to be Testo, the narrator of the combattimento, and instruments suddenly appeared, and Testo began his narration of the story of Tancredi and Clorinda, which is taken from Tasso's Jerusalem in Liberata. And that must have been an astonishing moment. And being in that space, imagining that, changes again the way in which you view Monteverdi's Combattimento. Tim Carter, thank you very much for speaking to us today.
When it comes to the vast majority of the repertoire of the past centuries, most of the hard information regarding an original performance space is lost. But in some cases, just like we've heard, there are clues which help us conceive how a certain performance might have been heard, or what the challenges associated with performing on a particular stage or in a certain space were. When it comes to acoustics, there are still many questions that may never be answered. For example, would composers writing a mass or a motet for a performance in a large cathedral with a particularly wet acoustic be sensitive to the fact that the echo of the singers might affect the audience's reception of that work? Although we as listeners attend professional live music performances in different spaces, as a rule we face them head-on, and not at all frequently in alternative ways, from hidden galleries, for example, like in the Capella Santa Barbara. In fact, most of our concert-specific spaces today are not built to accommodate much innovation in that sense, even if by innovation I mean to perform an ancient work where the performers stand in physical relation to the audience similar to that as in the space of the work's first performance. So this is the only point in the entire season where I'm going to divert away from myself for a second. But I thought that I would share with you my favorite experiment with early music and space done by a modern artist on permanent installation at the Rideau Chapel of the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa is a sound installation by Canadian artist Janet Cardiff titled 40 Voice Motet. Cardiff worked with the choir of Salisbury Cathedral in the UK to record 16th century composer Thomas Tallis's Speminalium, a motet which calls for 40 separate vocal parts, split up between eight choirs of five voices each. Cardiff recorded every individual singer's voice in the performance, and the work is performed in the space, with each voice being given its own individual speaker, and all 40 speakers are set in a circle which surround the visitor. Having experienced Cardiff's work myself, I have to say that it is very visceral. So it just goes to show that modern artists, even those outside of the realm of performance, experiment with early music and space in ways which may have even been intended in certain first instances. If you're interested in seeing more, there's a little video clip from the Tate Gallery about Cardiff's exhibition. The link to that will be in the show notes. Although its inspiration was not connected with the idea of original performance spaces, the installation forces the visitor to experience the work in a new way and translates an organizational tool in the composition, that of the splitting of the voices into eight equal choirs, it translates it into a spatial device, a dynamic to the reception which would be entirely lost if one were to visit a traditional performance of Talis's work. That's it for me in this, the third episode of the Early Music Podcast Season 3. In the next, I speak with early keyboard specialist Catalina Vicens about the challenges and objectives in reconstructing instruments which we know to have existed, but which haven't survived to the present day. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.